Part One of The Runaway Skyscraper by Murray Leinster. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part One of The Runaway Skyscraper by Mary Leinster. Chapter One The whole thing started when the clock on the Metropolitan Tower began to run backward. It was not a graceful proceeding. The hands had been moving onward in their customary deliberate fashion, slowly and thoughtfully, but suddenly the people in the offices near the clock's face heard an ominous creaking and groaning. There was a slight, hardly discernible shiver through the tower, and then something gave with a crash. The big hands on the clock began to move backward. Immediately after the crash all the creaking and groaning ceased, and instead the usual quiet again hung over everything. One or two of the occupants of the upper offices put their heads out into the halls, but the elevators were running as usual, the lights were burning, and all seemed calm and peaceful. The clerks and stenographers went back to their ledgers and typewriters, the business callers returned to the discussion of their errands, and the ordinary course of business was resumed. Arthur Chamberlain was dictating a letter to Estelle Woodward, his sole stenographer. When the crash came, he paused, listened, and then resumed his task. It was not a difficult one. Talking to Estelle Woodward was at no time an onerous duty, but it must be admitted that Arthur Chamberlain found it difficult to keep his conversation strictly upon business. He was at this time engaged in dictating a letter to his principal creditors, the Gary and Milton Company, explaining that their demand for the immediate payment of the installment then due upon his office furniture was untimely and unjust. A young and budding engineer in New York never has too much money, and when he is young as Arthur Chamberlain was, and as fond of pleasant company, and not too fond of economizing, he is liable to find all demands for payment untimely, and he usually considers them unjust as well. Arthur finished dictating the letter and sighed. Miss Woodward, he said regretfully, I am afraid I shall never make a successful man. Miss Woodward shook her head vaguely. She did not seem to take his remark very seriously, but then she had learned never to take any of his remarks seriously. She had been puzzled at first by his manner of treating everything with a half-joking pessimism, but now ignored it. She was interested in her own problems. She had suddenly decided that she was going to be an old maid, and it bothered her. She had discovered that she did not like anyone well enough to marry, and she was in her twenty-second year. She was not a native of New York, and the few young men she had met there she did not care for. She had regretfully decided she was too finicky, too fastidious, but could not seem to help herself. She could not understand their absorption in boxing and baseball, and she did not like the way they danced. She had considered the matter and decided that she would have to reconsider her former opinion of women who did not marry. Heretofore she had thought there must be something the matter with them. 
Now she believed that she would come to their own estate, and probably for the same reason. She could not fall in love, and she wanted to. She read all the popular novels and thrilled at the love scenes contained in them, but when any of the young men she knew became in the slightest degree sentimental she found herself bored, and disgusted with herself for being bored. Still, she could not help it, and was struggling to reconcile herself to a life without romance. She was far too pretty for that, of course, and Arthur Chamberlain often longed to tell her how pretty she really was, but her abstracted air held him at arm's length. He lay back at ease in his swivel chair and considered, looking at her with unfeigned pleasure. She did not notice it, for she was so much absorbed in her own thoughts that she rarely noticed anything he said or did when they were not in the line of her duties. Miss Woodward? he repeated. I said I think I'll never make a successful man. Do you know what that means? She looked at him mutely, polite inquiry in her eyes. It means, he said gravely, that I'm going broke. Unless something turns up in the next three weeks or a month at the latest, I'll have to get a job. And that means? she asked. All this will go to pot. He explained with a sweeping gesture. I thought I'd better tell you as much in advance as I could. You, you mean you're going to give up your office and me? She asked, a little alarmed. Giving you up will be the harder of the two, he said with a smile. But that's what it means. You'll have no difficulty finding a new place with three weeks in which to look for one. But I'm sorry. I'm sorry, too, Mr. Chamberlain she said, her brow puckered. She was not really frightened, because she knew she could get another position, but she became aware of rather more regret than she had expected. There was silence for a moment. Jove, said Arthur suddenly, it's getting dark, isn't it? It was. It was growing dark with unusual rapidity. Arthur went to his window and looked out. Funny, he remarked in a moment or two. Things don't look just right down there somehow. There are very few people about. He watched in growing amazement. Lights came on in the streets below, but none of the buildings lighted up. It grew darker and darker. It shouldn't be dark at this hour, Arthur exclaimed. Estelle went to the window by his side. It looks awfully queer, she agreed. It must be an eclipse or something. They heard doors open in the hall outside, and Arthur ran out. The halls were beginning to fill with excited people. "'What on earth's the matter?' asked a worried stenographer. "'Probably an eclipse,' replied Arthur. "'Only it's odd we didn't read about it in the papers.' He glanced along the corridor. No one else seemed better informed than he, and he went back into his office. Estelle turned from the window as he appeared. "'The streets are deserted.' she said in a puzzled tone. What's the matter? Did you hear? Arthur shook his head and reached for the telephone. I'll call up and find out, he said confidently. He held the receiver to his ear. What the? he exclaimed. Listen to this. A small-sized roar was coming from the receiver. Arthur hung up and turned a blank face upon Estelle. Look, she said suddenly and pointed out the window. 
All the city was now lighted up, and such of the signs as they could see were brilliantly illuminated. They watched in silence. The streets once more seemed filled with vehicles. They darted along, their headlamps lighting up the roadway brilliantly. There was, however, something strange even about their motion. Arthur and Estelle watched in growing amazement and perplexity. Are, are you seeing what I'm seeing? asked Estelle, breathlessly. I see them going backward. Arthur watched and collapsed into his chair. For the love of Mike, he exclaimed softly. Chapter Two He was roused by another exclamation from Estelle. It's getting light again, she said. Arthur rose and went eagerly to the window. The darkness was becoming less intense, but in a way Arthur could hardly credit. Far to the west, over beyond the Jersey Hills, easily visible from the height at which Arthur's office was located, a faint light appeared in the sky, grew stronger, and then took on a reddish tint. That in turn grew deeper, and at last the sun appeared, rising unconcernedly in the west. Arthur gasped. The streets below continued to be thronged with people and motor-cars. The sun was traveling with extraordinary rapidity. It rose overhead, and as if by magic the streets were thronged with people. Everyone seemed to be running at top speed. The few teams they saw moved at a breakneck pace backward. In spite of the suddenly topsy-turvy state of affairs, there seemed to be no accidents. Arthur put his hands to his head. Miss Woodward, he said pathetically, I'm afraid I've gone crazy. Do you see the same things I do? Estelle nodded, her eyes wide open. What is the matter? she asked helplessly. She turned again to the window. The square was almost empty once more. The motor-cars still traveling about the streets were going so swiftly that they were hardly visible. Their speed seemed to increase steadily. Soon it was almost impossible to distinguish them, and only a grayish blur marked their paths along Fifth Avenue and Twenty-Third Street. It grew dusk, and then rapidly dark. As their office was on the western side of the building, they could not see that the sun had sunk in the east. But subconsciously they realized that this must be the case. In silence they watched the panorama grow black except for the street lamps remain thus for a time, and then suddenly spring into brilliantly illuminated activity. Again this lasted for a little while, and the west once more began to glow. The sun rose somewhat more hastily from the Jersey hills and began to soar overhead, but very soon darkness fell again. With hardly an interval the city became illuminated, and then the west grew red once more. Apparently said Arthur, steadying his voice with a conscious effort. There's been a cataclysm somewhere. The direction of the Earth's rotation has been reversed, and its speed immensely increased. It seems to take only about five minutes for a rotation now. As he spoke, darkness fell for the third time. Estelle turned from the window with a white face. What's going to happen? she cried. I don't know, answered Arthur. The scientist fellow tells us if the Earth were to spin fast enough, the centrifugal force would throw us all off into space. Perhaps that's what's going to happen. 
Estelle sank into a chair and stared at him, appalled. There was a sudden explosion behind them. With a start, Estelle jumped to her feet and turned. A little gilt clock over her typewriter desk lay in fragments. Arthur hastily glanced at his own watch. Great bombs and little cannonballs, he shouted. Look at this! His watch trembled and quivered in his hand. The hands were going around so swiftly it was impossible to watch the minute hand, and the hour hand traveled like the wind. While they looked, it made two complete revolutions. In one of them, the glory of daylight had waxed, waned, and vanished. In the other, darkness reigned, except for the glow from the electric light overhead. There was a sudden tension and catch in the watch. Arthur dropped it instantly. It flew to pieces before it reached the floor. If you've got a watch, Arthur ordered swiftly, stop it this instant. Estelle fumbled at her wrist. Arthur tore the watch from her hand and threw open the case. The machinery inside was going so swiftly it was hardly visible. Relentlessly, Arthur jabbed a penholder in the works. There was a sharp click, and the watch was still. Arthur ran to the window. As he reached it, the sun rushed up. Day lasted a moment, there was darkness, and then the sun appeared again. Miss Woodward, Arthur ordered suddenly, look at the ground. Estelle glanced down. The next time the sun flashed into view, she gasped. The ground was white with snow. What has happened? she demanded, terrified. Oh, what has happened? Arthur fumbled at his chin awkwardly, watching the astonishing panorama outside. There was hardly any distinguishing between the times the sun was up and the times it was below now, as the darkness and light followed each other so swiftly the effect was the same as one of the old flickering motion pictures. As Arthur watched, this effect became more pronounced. The tall Fifth Avenue building across the way began to disintegrate. In a moment it seemed there was only a skeleton there. Then that vanished, story by story. A great cavity in the earth appeared, and then another building became visible, a smaller brownstone, unimpressive structure. With bulging eyes, Arthur stared across the city. Except for the flickering, he could see almost clearly now. He no longer saw the sun rise and set. There was merely a streak of unpleasantly brilliant light across the sky. Bit by bit, building by building, the city began to disintegrate and become replaced by smaller, dingier buildings. In a little while, those began to disappear and leave gaps where they vanished. Arthur strained his eyes and looked far downtown. He saw a forest of masts and spars along the waterfront for a moment, and when he turned his eyes again to the scenery near him it was almost barren of houses, and what few showed were mean, small residences, apparently set in the midst of farms and plantations. Estelle was sobbing. Oh, Mr. Chamberlain, she cried, what is the matter? What has happened? Arthur had lost his fear of what their fate would be and his absorbing interest in what he saw. He was staring out of the window, wide-eyed, lost in the sight before him. At Estelle's cry, however, he reluctantly left the window and patted her shoulder awkwardly. I don't know how to explain it, he said uncomfortably, but it's obvious that my first surmise was all wrong. The speed of the Earth's rotation can't have been increased because if it had, to the extent we see, we'd have been thrown off into space long ago. 
But have you read anything about the fourth dimension? Estelle shook her head hopelessly. Well, then, have you ever read anything by Wells? The, the time machine, for instance? Again she shook her head. I don't know how I'm going to say it, so you'll understand, but time is just as much a dimension as length and breadth. From what I can judge, I'd say there has been an earthquake and the ground has settled a little with our building on it. Only instead of settling down toward the center of the earth or sideways, it's settled in the fourth dimension. But what does that mean? asked Estelle uncomprehendingly. If the earth had settled down, we'd have been lower. If it had settled to one side, we'd have been moved one way or the other. But as it's settled back in the fourth dimension, we're going back in time. Then we're in a runaway skyscraper, bound for some time back before the discovery of America. Chapter 3 It was very still in the office. Except for the flickering outside, everything seemed very much as usual. The electric light burned steadily, but Estelle was sobbing with fright, and Arthur was trying vainly to console her. "'Have I gone crazy?' she demanded between her sobs. "'Not unless I've gone mad, too,' said Arthur soothingly. The excitement had quite a soothing effect upon him. He had ceased to feel afraid, but was simply waiting to see what had happened. We're way back, before the founding of New York now, and still going strong. Are you sure that's what's happened? If you'll look outside, he suggested, you'll see the seasons following each other in reverse order. One moment the snow covers all the ground, then you catch a glimpse of autumn foliage, then summer follows, and next spring. Estelle glanced out the window and covered her eyes. Not a house, she said despairingly. Not a building. Nothing. 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 Arthur slipped his arm about her and patted hers comfortingly. It's all right, he reassured her. We'll bring up presently, and there will be. There's nothing to be afraid of. She rested her head on his shoulder and sobbed hopelessly for a little while longer, but presently quieted. Then, suddenly, realizing that Arthur's arm was about her and that she was crying on his shoulder, she sprang away, blushing crimson. Arthur walked to the window. "'Look there!' he exclaimed, but it was too late. "'I'll swear it! I saw the half-moon! Hudson's ship!' he declared excitedly. "'We're way back now, and don't seem to be slacking up, either!' Estelle came to the window by his side. The rapidly changing scene before her made her gasp. It was no longer possible to distinguish night from day. A wavering streak, moving first to the right and then to the left, showed where the sun flashed across the sky. "'What makes the sun wobble so?' she asked. "'Moving north and south of the equator,' Arthur explained casually. "'When it's farthest south, to the left, there's always snow on the ground. When it's farthest right, it's summer. See how green it is?' A few moments' observation corroborated his statement. "'I'd say—' Arthur remarked reflectively, that it takes about fifteen seconds for the sun to make the round trip from farthest north to farthest south. He felt his pulse. Do you know the normal rate of the heartbeat? We can judge time that way. A clock will go all to pieces, of course. Why did your watch explode? And the clock? 
Running forward in time unwinds a clock, doesn't it? asked Arthur. It follows, of course, that when you move it backwards in time, it winds up. When you move it too far back, you wind it so tightly that the spring just breaks to pieces. He paused a moment, his fingers on his pulse. Yes. It takes about fifteen seconds for all the four seasons to pass. That means we're going backwards in time about four years a minute. If we go on at this rate another hour, we'll be back in the time of the Northmen, and we'll be able to tell if they did discover America after all. Funny we don't hear any noises, Estelle observed. She had caught some of Arthur's calmness. It passes so quickly that though our ears hear it, we don't separate the sounds. If you'll notice, you do hear a sort of humming. It's very high-pitched, though. Estelle listened, but could hear nothing. No matter, said Arthur. It's probably a little higher than your ears will catch. Lots of people can't hear bats squeak. I never could, said Estelle. Out in the country where I come from, other people could hear them, but I couldn't. They stood a while in silence, watching. When are we going to stop? asked Estelle uneasily. It seems as if we're going to keep on indefinitely. I guess we'll stop all right, Arthur reassured her. It's obvious that whatever it was only affected our own building, or we'd see some other one with us. It looks like a fault or flaw in the rock the building rests on, and that can only give so far. Estelle was silent for a moment. Oh, I can't be sane, she burst out semi-hysterically. This can't be happening. You aren't crazy, said Arthur sharply. You're sane as I am. Just something queer is happening. Buck up. Say your multiplication tables. Say anything you know. Say something sensible, and you'll know you're all right. But don't get frightened now. There'll be plenty to get frightened about later. The grimness in his tone alarmed Estelle. What are you afraid of? she asked quickly. Time enough to worry when it happens, Arthur retorted briefly. You aren't afraid we'll go back before the beginning of the world, are you?" asked Estelle, in sudden access of fright. Arthur shook his head. "'Tell me,' said Estelle, more quietly, getting a grip on herself. "'I won't mind. But please tell me.' Arthur glanced at her. Her face was pale, but there was more resolution in it than he had expected to find. "'I'll tell you, then,' he said reluctantly. We're going back a little faster than we were, and the flaw seems to be a deeper one than I thought. At the roughest kind of an estimate, we're all of a thousand years before the discovery of America now, and I think nearer to three or four, and we're gaining speed all the time. So, though I am as sure as I can be sure of anything that will stop this cave-in eventually, I don't know where. It's like a crevasse in the earth opened by an earthquake which may be only a few feet deep, or it may be hundreds of yards, or even a mile or two. We started off smoothly. We're going at a terrific rate. What will happen when we stop?" Estelle caught her breath. "'What?' she asked quietly. "'I don't know,' said Arthur in an irritated tone to cover his apprehension. "'How could I know?' Estelle turned from him to the window again. Look, she said, pointing. The flickering had begun again. 
While they stared, hope springing up once more in their hearts, it became more pronounced. Soon they could distinctly see the difference between day and night. They were slowing up. The white snow on the ground remained there for an appreciable time. Autumn lasted quite a while. They could catch the flashes of the sun as it made its revolutions now, instead of seeming like a ribbon of fire. At last day lasted all of fifteen or twenty minutes. It grew longer and longer. Then half an hour, then an hour. Then the sun wavered in mid-heaven and was still. Far below them the watchers in the tower of the skyscraper saw trees swaying and bending in the wind. Though there was not a house or a habitation to be seen, and a dense forest covered all of Manhattan Island, such of the world as they could see looked normal. Wherever, or rather in whatever epoch of time they were, they had arrived. Chapter 4 Arthur caught at Estelle's arm, and the two made a dash for the elevators. Fortunately, one was standing still, the door open on their floor. The elevator boy had deserted his post and was looking with all the rest of the occupants of the building at the strange landscape that surrounded them. No sooner had the pair reached the car, however, than the boy came hurrying along the corridor, three or four other people following him also at a run. Without a word the boy rushed inside, the others crowded after him, and the car shot downward, all of the newcomers panting from their sprint. Theirs was the first car to reach the bottom. They rushed out and to the western door. Here, where they had been accustomed to see Madison Square spread out before them, a clearing of perhaps half an acre in extent showed itself. Where their eyes instinctively looked for the dark bronze fountain near which soapbox orators aforetime held sway, they saw a tent, a wigwam of hides and bark, gaily painted and before the wigwam were two or three brown-skinned Indians, utterly petrified with astonishment. Behind the first wigwam were others, painted like the first with daubs of brightly colored clay. From them, too, Indians issued and stared in incredulous amazement, their eyes growing wider and wider. When the group of white people confronted the Indians, there was a moment's death-like silence. Then, with a wild yell, the redskins broke and ran, not stopping to gather together their belongings, nor pausing for even a second glance at the weird strangers who invaded their domain. Arthur took two or three deep breaths of the fresh air and found himself even then comparing its quality with that of the city. Estelle stared about her with unbelieving eyes. She turned and saw the great bulk of the office building behind her then faced this small clearing with a virgin forest on its farther side. She found herself trembling from some undefined cause. Arthur glanced at her. He saw the trembling and knew she would have a fit of nerves in a moment if something did not come up demanding instant attention. "'We'd better take a look at this village,' he said in an offhand voice. "'We can probably find out how long ago it is from the weapons and so on.' He grasped her arm firmly and led her in the direction of the tents. The other people, left behind, displayed their emotions in different ways. Two or three of them, women, sat frankly down on the steps and indulged in tears of bewilderment, fright, and relief in a peculiar combination defying analysis. 
Two or three of the men swore in shaken voices. Meantime, the elevators inside the building were rushing and clanging, and the hall filled with a white-faced mob desperately anxious to find out what had happened and why. The people poured out of the door and stared about blankly. There was a peculiar expression of doubt on every one of their faces. Each one was asking himself if he were awake, and, having proved that by pinches openly administered, the next query was whether they had gone mad. Arthur led Estelle cautiously among the tents. The village contained about a dozen wigwams. Most of them were made of strips of birch bark, cleverly overlapping each other. The seams were cemented with gum. All had hide flaps for doors, and one or two were built almost entirely of hides, sewn together with strips of sinew. Arthur made only a cursory examination of the village. His principal motive in taking Estelle there was to give her some mental occupation to ward off the reaction from the excitement of the cataclysm. He looked into one or two of the tents and found merely couches of hides with minor domestic utensils scattered about. He brought from one tent a bow and quiver of arrows. The workmanship was good, but very evidently the maker had no knowledge of metal tools. Arthur's acquaintance with archaeological subjects was very slight, but he observed that the arrowheads were chipped and not rubbed smooth. They were attached to the shafts with strips of gut or tendon. Arthur was still pursuing his investigations when a sob from Estelle made him stop and look at her. Oh, what are we going to do? she asked tearfully. What are we going to do? Where, where are we? You mean, when are we? Arthur corrected with a grim smile. I don't know. Way back before the discovery of America, though. You can see in everything in the village that there isn't a trace of European civilization. I suspect that we are several thousand years back. I can't tell, of course, but this pottery makes me think so. See this bowl?" He pointed to a bowl of red clay lying on the ground before one of the wigwams. If you'll look, you'll see that it isn't really pottery at all. It's a basket that was woven of reeds and then smeared with clay to make it fire-resistant. The people who made that didn't know about baking clay to make it stay put. When America was discovered, nearly all the tribes knew something about pottery. But what are we going to do? Estelle tearfully insisted. "'We're going to muddle along as best as we can,' answered Arthur cheerfully, "'until we can get back to where we started from. Maybe the people back in the twentieth century can send a relief party after us. When the skyscraper vanished, it must have left a hole of some sort, and it may be possible for them to follow us.' "'If that's so,' said Estelle quickly, "'why can't we climb up it without waiting for them to come after us?' Arthur scratched his head. He looked across the clearing at the skyscraper. It seemed to rest very solidly on the ground. He looked up. The sky seemed normal. To tell the truth, he admitted, there doesn't seem to be any hole. I said that more to cheer you up than anything else. Estelle clenched her hands tightly and took a grip on herself. Just tell me the truth, she said quietly. I was rather foolish, but tell me what you honestly think. Arthur eyed her keenly. "'In that case,' he said reluctantly, "'I'll admit we're in a pretty bad fix. I don't know what has happened, how it happened, or anything about it. 
I'm just going to keep on going until I see a way clear to get out of this mess. There are two thousand of us people, more or less, and among all of us we must be able to find a way out." Estelle turned very pale. "'We're in no great danger from Indians,' went on Arthur thoughtfully, or from anything else that I know of except one thing." "'What is that?' asked Estelle quickly. Arthur shook his head and led her back toward the skyscraper, which was now thronged with people from all the floors who had come down to the ground and were standing excitedly about the concourse, asking each other what had happened. Arthur led Estelle to one of the corners. "'Wait here for me,' he ordered. "'I'm going to talk to this crowd.' He pushed his way through until he could reach the confectionery and newsstand in the main hallway. Here he climbed up on the counter and shouted, "'People!' Listen to me. I'm going to tell you what's happened." In an instant there was dead silence. He found himself the center of a sea of white faces, every one contorted with fear and anxiety. "'To begin with,' he said confidently, "'there's nothing to be afraid of. We're going to get back to where we started from. I don't know how yet, but we'll do it. Don't get frightened. Now I'll tell you what's happened.' He rapidly sketched out for them, in words as simple as he could make them, his theory that a flaw in the rock on which the foundations rested had developed and let the skyscraper sink not downward but into the fourth dimension. "'I'm an engineer,' he finished. "'What nature can do, we can imitate. Nature let us into this hole. We'll climb out. In the meantime, matters are serious. We needn't be afraid of getting back. We'll do that. What we've got to fight is starvation. Chapter 5 We've got to fight starvation, and we've got to beat it, Arthur continued doggedly. I'm telling you this right at the outset, because I want you to begin right at the beginning and pitch in to help. We have very little food, and a lot of us to eat it. First, I want some volunteers to help with rationing. Next, I want every ounce of food in this place put under guard where it can be served to those who need it most. Who will help out with this?" The swift succession of shocks had paralyzed the faculties of most of the people there, but half a dozen moved forward. Among them was a single gray-haired man with an air of accustomed authority. Arthur recognized him as the president of the bank on the ground floor. I don't know who you are or if you're right in saying what has happened," said the gray-haired man. But I see something's got to be done, and, well, for the first time I'll take your word for what that is. Later on we'll thrash out this matter." Arthur nodded. He bent over and spoke in a low voice to the gray-haired man, who moved away. "'Grayson, Walters, Terhune, Simpson, and Forsythe, come here,' the gray-haired man called at the doorway. A number of men began to press dazedly toward him. Arthur resumed his harangue. "'You people, those of you who aren't too dazed to think, are remembering there's a restaurant in the building and no need to starve. You're wrong. There are nearly two thousand of us here. That means six thousand meals a day. We've got to have nearly ten tons of food a day, and we've got to have it at once.' "'Hunt?' someone suggested. "'I saw Indians.' Someone else shouted, "'Can we trade with them?' "'We can hunt, and we can trade with the Indians,' Arthur admitted. "'But we need food by the ton. By the ton, people. 
the Indians don't store up supplies, and besides, they're much too scattered to have a surplus for us. But we've got to have food. Now, how many of you know anything about hunting, fishing, trapping, or any possible way of getting food? There were a few hands raised, pitifully few. Arthur saw Estelle's hand up. Very well, he said. Those of you who raised your hands then come with me up on the second floor and we'll talk it over. The rest of you try to conquer your fright and don't go outside for a while. We've got some things to attend to before it will be quite safe for you to venture out. And keep away from the restaurant. There are armed guards over that food. Before we pass it out indiscriminately, we'll see to it there's more for tomorrow and the next day." He stepped down from the counter and moved toward the stairway. It was not worthwhile to use the elevator for the ride of only one floor. Estelle managed to join him, and they mounted the steps together. "'Do you think we'll pull through all right?' she asked quietly. "'We've got to,' Arthur told her, setting his chin firmly. We've simply got to." The gray-haired president of the bank was waiting for them at the top of the stairs. "'My name is Van Deventer,' he said, shaking hands with Arthur, who gave his own name. "'Where shall our emergency council sit?' he asked. "'The bank has a boardroom right over the safety vault. I dare say we can accommodate everybody there, everybody in the council, anyway.' Arthur followed into the boardroom, and the others trooped in after him. I'm just assuming temporary leadership," Arthur explained, because it's imperative some things be done at once. Later on we can talk about electing officials to direct our activities. Right now we need food. How many of you can shoot?" About a quarter of the hands were raised. Estelle's was among that number. And how many are fishermen? A few more went up. What do the rest of you do? There was a chorus of, Gardener. I have a garden in my yard. I grow peaches in New Jersey. And three men confessed that they raised chickens as a hobby. We'll want you gardeners in a little while. Don't go yet. But the most important are huntsmen and fishermen. Have any of you weapons in your offices? A number had revolvers, but only one man had a shotgun and shells. I was going on my vacation this afternoon straight from the office, he explained, and have all my vacation tackle. Good man, Arthur exclaimed. You'll go after the heavy game. With a shotgun? the sportsman asked aghast. If you get close to them, a shotgun will do as well as anything, and we can't waste a shell on every bird or rabbit. Those shells of yours are precious. You other fellows will have to turn fishermen for a while. Your pistols are no good for hunting." "'The watchmen at the bank have riot guns,' said Van Deventer. And there are one or two repeating rifles there. I don't know about ammunition." "'Good. I don't mean about the ammunition, but about the guns. We'll hope for the ammunition. You fishermen get to work to improvise tackle out of anything you can get a hold of. Will you do that?' A series of nods answered his question. Now for the gardeners. You people will have to roam through the woods in company with the hunters and locate anything in the way of edibles that grows. Do all of you know what wild plants look like? I mean, wild fruits and vegetables that are good to eat. A few of them nodded, but the majority looked dubious. The consensus of opinion seemed to be that they would try. Arthur seemed a little discouraged. I 
guess you're the man to tell about the restaurant, Van Deventer said quietly. And as this is the food commission, or something of that sort, everybody here will be better for hearing it. Anyway, everybody will have to know it before night. I took over the restaurant as you suggested, and posted some of the men from the bank that I knew I could trust about the doors. But there was hardly any use in doing it. The restaurant stocks up in the afternoon, as most of its business is in the morning and at noon. It only carries a day's stock of foodstuffs, and the, the cataclysm, or whatever it was, came at three o'clock. There is practically nothing in the place. We couldn't make sandwiches for half the women that are caught with us, let alone the men. Everybody will go hungry tonight. There will be no breakfast tomorrow, nor anything to eat until we either make arrangements with the Indians for some supplies or else get food for ourselves." Arthur leaned his jaw on his hand and considered. A slow flush crept over his cheek. He was getting his fighting blood up. At school, when he began to flush slowly, his schoolmates had known the symptom and avoided his wrath. Now he was growing angry with mere circumstances, but it would be none the less unfortunate for those circumstances. Well, he said at last deliberately, we've got to. What's that? There was a great creaking and groaning. Suddenly a sort of vibration was felt underfoot. The floor began to take on a slight slant. Great heaven, someone cried. The building's turning over and we'll be buried in the ruins. The tilt of the floor became more pronounced. An empty chair slid to one end of the room. There was a crash. Chapter 6 Arthur woke to find someone tugging at his shoulders, trying to drag him from beneath the heavy table which had wedged itself across his feet and pinned him fast, while a flying chair had struck him on the head and knocked him unconscious. Oh, come and help! Estelle's voice was calling deliberately. Somebody come and help! He's caught in here! She was sobbing in a combination of panic and some unknown emotion. Help me, please! she gasped. Then her voice broke despondently, but she never ceased to tug ineffectually at Chamberlain, trying to drag him out of the mass of wreckage. Arthur moved a little dazedly. Are you alive? she called anxiously. Are you alive? Hurry, oh, hurry and wiggle out. The building's falling to pieces. I'm all right, Arthur said weakly. You get out before it all comes down. I won't leave you, she declared. Where are you caught? Are you badly hurt? Hurry, please hurry. Arthur stirred, but could not loosen his feet. He half rolled over, and the table moved as if it had been precariously balanced and slid heavily to one side. With Estelle still tugging at him, he managed to get his feet on the slanting floor and stared about him. Arthur continued to stare about. No danger, he said weakly. Just the floor of one room gave way, the aftermath of the rock flaw. He made his way across the splintered flooring and piled up chairs. We're on top of the safe deposit vault, he said. That's why we didn't fall all the way to the floor below. I wonder how we're going to get down." Estelle followed him, still frightened for fear of the building falling upon them. Some of the long floorboards stretched over the edge of the vault and rested on a tall bronze grating that protected the approach to the massive strongbox. Arthur tested them with his foot. They seem pretty solid, he said tentatively. His strength was coming back to him every moment. 
He had been no more than stunned. He walked out on the planking to the bronze grating and turned. If you don't get dizzy, you might come on, he said. We can swing down the grill here to the floor. Estelle followed gingerly, and in a moment they were safely below. The corridor was quite empty. When the crash came, Estelle explained, her voice shaking with the reaction from her fear of a moment ago. Everyone thought the building was coming to pieces and ran out. I'm afraid they've all run away. They'll be back in a little while, Arthur said quietly. They went along the big marble corridor to the same western door, out of which they had first gone to see the Indian village. As they emerged into the sunlight, they met a few of the people who had already recovered from their panic and were returning. A crowd of respectable size gathered in a few moments, all still pale and shaken, but coming back to the building which was their refuge. Arthur leaned wearily against the cold stone. It seemed to vibrate under his touch. He turned quickly to Estelle. Feel this! he exclaimed. She did so. I've been wondering what that rumble was, she said. I've been hearing it ever since we landed here, but didn't understand where it came from. You hear a rumble? Arthur asked, puzzled. I can't hear anything. It isn't as loud as it was, but, but I hear it, Estelle insisted. It's very deep, like the lowest possible bass note of an organ. You couldn't hear the shrill whistle when we were coming here, Arthur exclaimed suddenly, and you can't hear the squeak of a bat. Of course, your ears are pitched lower than usual, and you can hear sounds that are lower than I can hear. Listen carefully. Does it sound in the least like a liquid rushing through somewhere? Yes, said Estelle hesitatingly. Somehow I don't quite understand how it gives me the impression of a tidal flow or something of that sort. Arthur rushed indoors. When Estelle followed him, she found him excitedly examining the marble floor about the base of the vault. It's cracked, he said excitedly. It's cracked. The vault rose all of an inch. Estelle looked and saw the cracks. What does it mean? It means we're going to get back where we belong. Arthur cried jubilantly. It means I'm on the track of the whole trouble. It means everything's going to be all right. He prowled about the vault exultantly, noting exactly how the cracks in the flooring ran and seeing in each a corroboration of his theory. I'll have to make some inspections in the cellar, he went on happily, but I'm nearly sure I'm on the right track and can figure out a corrective. How soon can we hope to start back? asked Estelle eagerly. Arthur hesitated, then a great deal of excitement ebbed from his face, leaving it rather worried and stern. It may be a month or two months or a year, he answered gravely. I don't know. If the first thing I try will work, it won't be long. If we have to experiment, I daren't guess how long we may be. But, his chin set firmly, we're going to get back. Estelle looked at him speculatively. Her own expression grew a little worried, too. But in a month, she said dubiously, we—there is hardly any hope of our finding food for two thousand people for a month, is there? We've got to, Arthur declared. We can't hope to get that much food from the Indians. It will be days before they'll dare to come back to their village, if they ever come. 
It will be weeks before we can hope to have them earnestly at work to feed us, and that's leaving aside the question of how we'll communicate with them and how we'll manage to trade with them. Frankly, I think everybody is going to have to draw his belt tight before we get through. If we do, some of us will get along anyway." Estelle's eyes opened wide as the meaning of his last sentence penetrated her mind. "'You mean that all of us won't—' "'I'm going to take care of you,' Arthur said gravely. "'But there are liable to be lively doings around here when people begin to realize they're really in a tight fix for food. I'm going to get Van Deventer to help me organize a police band to enforce martial law. We mustn't have any disorder, that's certain, and I don't trust a city-bred man in a pinch unless I know him." He stooped and picked up a revolver from the floor, left there by one of the bank watchmen when he fled in the belief that the building was falling. End of Part 1 of The Runaway Skyscraper by Mary Leinster